As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. A July edition of the VanCast, Farhan Lalji and Harmon Dial. We were debating about whether or not to do this show a couple of days ago on Canada Day itself when the Canucks made their signings, but given the fact that what they did was pretty much what was expected... Uh, and the fact that we were all dealing with a bit of a long weekend, we thought, you know, we're just going to wait, give the VIPs a chance to digest, give Harm a chance to digest because he was busy doing stuff with, uh, you know, National. He's a Harm, you're a big time guy now. You don't just cover the Vancouver Canucks anymore. You do it all. But uh, here we are breaking down the Canucks free agent acquisitions in the summer of 2023. Yeah, and right off the bat, Honestly impressed into the job Patrick Alvin and the Canucks did in the sense that they checked off needs in terms of upgrading the back end, finding another bottom six centerman who can help out defensively and, and on the penalty kill. And they did it while not taking on a whole lot of risk, right? I think we're so used to July 1st coming around and and it's like so, somebody, um, uh, a Canucks fan I know, uh, texted me one that i'm uh one that i'm a friend with and he was sort of like um it's like the night before for him is usually like uh christmas right excited to see who joins the team i'm like no man usually it's friday the 13th you're like waiting to see what horrific future anchor contract (laughs) is about to land on the books whether it's you know beagle and roussel back in the day or, or myers and we're so used to at least one contract looking at it and going Wow, like there being some legitimate sticker shock. So to have a free agency this year where Cole's on a one-year deal, Bluger's on a one-year deal, Susie, of course, with three years of term and an elevated cap hit, that's, um, you know, there's some risk attached to that, but it's still a reasonable bet, especially if he can translate his form into higher leverage minutes. And overall, I think you absolutely take what the Canucks have done this offseason so far because... Again, this was a weaker class in terms of the players that were available on the market. And you were just worried that given the pressure on the team to improve for next season, especially after the Hronik trade and, you know, resending Miller and obviously then keeping him, that they might overpay. And now they had cap space. And typically, anytime this organization has had cap space, they've used it pretty irresponsibly. So this was a nice change of pace for this franchise, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And I go back to that horrific July 1st of 2018. And after the Canucks had made those signings, where they totally went far too long, I, you know, I, I want to say that during that free agency period, seven players signed contracts of four years or more, and three of them were by the Canucks. It was crazy. And um, 
just trying to trying to wrap my head around that. And I so I'm walking downstairs and I'm in the parking lot of Rogers Arena. And one of the Canucks front office members who I've known for a while was down. We were walking down together and he goes, we had no choice. We had to give all these guys an extra year or we were just never going to get them. And now, before we get into all the players by player and how they're going to fit, Patrick Alvin says he was really encouraged by the fact that a number of players and representatives reached out to them wanting to come to Vancouver and they had to make hard decisions to turn players down. Are you buying it? Well, it depends on what caliber of players we're talking about, right? Because I'm sure there are a lot of uh, fringe players that look at Vancouver as, as a nice city, as a team that is a much better destination than, let's say, in Arizona, right? Where, sure, in some markets you'll get opportunity, but you're playing in a much less desirable market or, or a team that's really going nowhere as opposed to the Canucks where their intent is pretty clear for next season. I mean, we saw especially like one one real selling point that Vancouver has, especially for these quad A types, is Abbotsford is so close, right? And so if you're mm-hmm. a player that has a partner, has a family, and you're a tweener and you don't know if you're going to make an NHL team, you might end up being a tweener between the NHL and the AHL. You might end up on waivers. It's so much better to know that, okay, to have the peace of mind that, okay, regardless, I know that I'm going to be in the lower mainland as opposed to some of some of these other AHL teams or even with Vancouver back in the day when the farm team was in Utica. It's like, if you don't make the team, you're all of a sudden going to have to fly all the way across the country and your life is being flipped completely upside down. And so I wonder if he's referring more so to the quad A types because, of course, Matt Irwin, for example, veteran defenseman that sort of fits that fits that sort of criteria. Alvin mentioned how adamant he was about wanting to play here, and, and that seemed like it was more a proactive decision on the players' front to tr- target Vancouver uh, as an opportunity. So I wonder if it, it was if it was more so those types of players rather than necessarily the top end names on the free agent market. Yeah, I would tend to agree. Um, you know, when you when you look at that, I mean, I, I don't know how many of the top end guys, especially guys later in their careers, some of whom wind up going to teams on discount deals just because they want to have one more shot at a cup or what have you. Like, I, I, I'd still be surprised to think that, um, you know, Corey Perry going to Tampa, like, you know, when he went a year ago, and I know he's moved on from there now. But when you when you look at that type of deal, like, I don't know that those types of players are looking to come to Vancouver. I mean, maybe Milan Lucic was at some point, but it wasn't necessarily that big of a priority. But, um, you know, and, and certainly can, the Canucks were mentioned with names like Ryan O'Reilly and JT Comfer. And certainly we, we knew that the dollar amounts were going to be a little bit difficult for them to go there. Um O'Reilly gets a uh, a four year eighteen million dollar deal, four point five million dollar AAV to go to Nashville, um, you know, and, and they they resisted, right? They resisted. So I'm just I'm trying to get a sense of how serious they were on that type of player. But either way, like I said, we we feel good about where they are. Might they have gone a little bit heavy cap wise on some of the players? just to get them here for the term they wanted, potentially, right? I mean, I think uh, uh, Evolving Hockey has their uh, their projection tool on what numbers were going to look like. And I think they had, uh, not Ian Cole, but I think they had um, Susie projected Susie? it at uh, 2.6 million and the Canucks wind up at 3.25 million. It, you know, and so so they might have gotten a, gone a little higher on certain players but, you know, even even Teddy Bluegers, I saw some that thought he might get around 1.5 or 1.6 and the Canucks bring him in at 1.9. None of it was egregious. And the fact that they kept the term down was even more significant. So if they spend 8.125 on these contracts, you know, and maybe you wish the Canucks would have spent a total of 7.5 million on the three of them. We're not talking about ridiculous amounts of money that are going to hamstring this organization for years on end. The numbers were good. So let's start with Susie. And a player they've got for three years, three point two five million, six foot five, generally in a third pair role in Seattle, but performed very well in that third pair role. And it doesn't seem like that much of a reach to suggest he could go up. Now put that in the context of Tyler Myers, right? Um, another big defenseman who the Canucks got from Winnipeg. And I remember the reports coming out of Winnipeg when the Canucks signed him, that if you try to get him out of a third pair, it's going to end badly. And yet the Canucks said, nope, 
different management team, but we're going to do this anyway. We believe we like the size. We like the player. We like the fit and we think he can do more. And sure enough, he was everything that we were told coming out of Winnipeg, that if you get him outside of his comfort level in terms of matchups, it'll end badly. And, and it has, um, there was a bit of that with Tucker Pullman, although we'll never really know what that experiment will look like given the injuries, but, do we believe that uh, Carson Soucy, who's been a good penalty killer, uh, you know, five on five scoring chances, he's been good in that area. Again, in protected minutes, are we comfortable that he's going to be able to elevate into the top four, potentially with Philip Roenick and how comfortable that's going to be? Yeah, well, that's going to make or break the value of this contract. And really, it uh, it's the biggest question with him, right? Because we don't necessarily have that track record with Soucy yet. Uh, he certainly has, in my opinion, the tools to be successful as, as, let's say, a supporting number four, as as sort of like the fourth guy rounding rounding out um, uh, your top four uh, in a second pair role. Maybe, maybe maybe if the Canucks are looking at secondary options in terms of experimenting with guys to play with Hughes, Susie can also play the right side, so that's another option as well. He is interesting because, of course, six foot five, massive in that sense which will help uh, in terms of defending down low, clearing the crease, all those sorts of things that are essential in trying to prevent a team from being able to create cycle chances. But actually, he's probably just as impressive, if not better, defending the rush, which I think is an important skill set, right? Because sometimes you have guys that have a lot of size, but they don't move well enough to defend speed well. And when you look at the direction of the NHL and how much teams are able to create off um, the rush these days, it's important to be able to gap up in the neutral zone. That's, you know, when you reference Myers, for example, that was one of Myers' biggest weaknesses was despite having a ton of reach and despite being pretty fleet of foot for his size, for whatever reason, you just didn't have the right footwork um, and skills to be able to gap up and defend the rush well, which is an area that Susi is legitimately good at. Now, the question mark with um, Susie beyond just the does his skill set actually translate to a higher leverage role would be that he's limited as a puck mover. He, in terms of his first pass and being able to help on defensive zone exits, won't be able to help a lot there. So that's something to be mindful of. But it is beneficial that he isn't strictly a pure stay-at-home defensive option because yes you won't help out, help out on transition and that's probably your concern but when you get into the offensive zone for example he's a bomb of a shot i think he had, i think he had 10 goals not this season but the year before he can make decent plays in a sort of supporting role which is important because if you're let's say talking about a possibility where he ends up playing some minutes with queen hughes here here or there for example hughes needs a guy who can make smart plays with the puck. And that's what Luke Shen was really good at. That's what Chris Tanev was really good at. That's what, for example, Tucker Pullman, in the limited sample that we saw with him with Hughes, that's what Pullman really struggled with, right? Was finding the right opportunities to make plays versus when to try and get shots through. And Pullman would get a lot of shot, shot get a lot of his shots blocked, would have, would have a tough time holding pucks at the offensive blue line and that's where Susie shouldn't have a problem. So I think the overall skill set with Susie should, in theory, be fine in a second pair role. But we'll see because, again, it, we're speaking theoretically as opposed to um, having an established track record. Yeah, no, I would tend to agree. And when you look at, um, I think between the two of them, I think Cole's got the bigger sample size of playing on the right side. Um, he certainly draws similar comparisons to what, uh, a Luke Shen uh, is able to do might even be a more skilled version, and it might it might fit better for him on the right side in terms of, um, like I said, just a guy that's comfortable playing on the right side and and being able to to complement what Hughes does. Um, when you when you look at Cole, um, you know what do you see there? Because this is a player who, again, you go to a deep defensive core like Tampa, and he's initially there to be a third pair guy, but then as things go, he winds up with Eric Chernak and they wind up playing in a shutdown pairing and have a lot of success doing that. 
Is he better served potentially playing elsewhere where he can be a bit more of a shutdown guy? And I don't know that Ronick or Hughes necessarily lends itself to that either way, right? Like if you all of a sudden decided that Ronick and Hughes are going to play together, which I think all of us believe is a bad idea because you want to have every pair with an ability to move the puck. And if you do that, you limit the second pair. But now the second pair could be created, you know, as a shutdown pair. But, you know, how do you see him best fitting? Is it is it with Hughes on the right side? Is it with Ronick on the left side? Is it with the two, you know, with the two top guys playing together and trying to be in a shutdown role? Where do you think it, it lands for Ian Cole? Yeah, I think Cole's skill set is, I mean, both guys are pretty good defensively, but Cole is definitely more defensively oriented in the sort of typical shutdown type uh, capacity, which makes me think, especially given his um, his extensive experience playing the right side, that he'd be a great partner for Quinn Hughes. But that's also mm-hmm. something that we'll kind of have to monitor going into training camp. What I like about Cole is that with him, we, we, we know for sure that he's able to hold down a top four role, right? That's not a theory. That's not something that you're hoping translates we're talking about a player that last season averaged nearly 20 minutes a night and faced significantly tougher than league average matchup so he's used to playing against top six competition he's used to playing top four minutes and his results in in those in, in that sort of role were really promising you're talking about uh, a player who surrendered five on five scoring chances at the lowest rate of all regular lightning defenders last season and it didn't come at the sacrifice of offense either because when Cole was on the ice, the Lightning were driving 54% of um, scoring chances. So that, I think, is um, you know awesome to see. Also in the penalty kill, he was the first uh, defense pair over alongside Eric Chernak. This isn't like sometimes when players are acquired and they have penalty killing experience, we sort of just vaguely refer, refer to them as, oh, that guy will help out on the penalty kill. And sometimes the player doesn't actually help out a lot because they're more second over the boards type PK guys. But no, Cole was legitimately tapped on the shoulder first or first over the boards, and um, and and he also had the lowest goals against rate among all Lightning defenders shorthanded. So that's really promising because again, when you're first over the boards, you're starting in the defensive zone, and and there's a good chance that. If the other team wins a draw, they're automatically getting set up. And so typically what happens is, let's say if you're second over the boards, you're used to penalty killing in in a much more favorable environment because the other team is typically starting in their own zone and they're having to enter the zone. And as a penalty kill, you're already in a position where you can try and disrupt their entries. It's much harder for them to get set up. So if you're a first over the boards type guy on the PK, that like that's a totally different role than being second over the boards and so Cole having that experience and excelling in that role I think is massive for the penalty kill because look Farhan for as much as this team even strength results if they improve at the end of the day they're not going to make the playoffs if they're still bottom five in the league in, in the for their penalty kill which they have been for two consecutive seasons 32nd last season 30th the year before so that's really important I also love the fact that he only got one year of term, right? Where I remember last episode talking about, I'd like it if it's two years. I'd hate it if it's three. The third year would worry me. And they got it down to one year, which is a little bit surprising because when you look at other sort of defensemen that sort of check boxes in terms of having some grit, having some size, having you know some experience, whether it's Luke Shen, whether it's Radka Gudis, even a Kyle Burroughs, those guys got term and Cole didn't. Of course, Cole's 34. So you can understand why teams were hesitant to give him term. Well, Shen's right up there. Shen's right up there as well. And if you yeah, look at no, exactly. overall value last season, Ian Cole was the better player. Yeah. And it wasn't by a huge difference, by a huge margin, but absolutely, you're right. Getting him at one one year of term. I mean, I, I love that. For me, that's you know, definitely along, alongside Bluger. Actually, I'd say I'd probably rate Cole as, as an even better value signing. I think I think Cole was probably the best value signing, at least based off what he was able to do last season, right? The only concern you always have to keep in mind with a 34-year-old defenseman is you never know when a guy's game might fall off a cliff. It hasn't yet for Cole. And um, again, you've, you've kept your risk low here. 
So from that perspective, I I really like it. And um, I mean, you also have the added benefit of, hey, if the season ever goes off the rail rails, you can always flip him as, um, you know, as a rental to another contender. Yeah, absolutely. He'll have value there for sure. I mean, I'll be honest. Part of me was hoping he would he was going to sign for two, but you also know that the Canucks need flexibility two years from now when when Patterson and um and Ronick their new contracts are going to potentially kick in at that point. So you do want maximum flexibility and not to get bogged down further. But you know, you talked about Cole repeatedly in terms of his penalty killing value, and that's Teddy Bluger as well, right? So let's talk about Bluger as a third line center and. You know, it may not always turn out that way, right? Like there may be different deployment in offensive and defensive zone between him and Nils Oman. But, you know, you look at this player who two years ago wound up with 28 points over 65 games. Um, you know, that's his high watermark. Uh, last year wasn't wasn't as good. He, he played for, for two different teams with Pittsburgh and Vegas, 63 games there, 16 points only. But defensively, a player who's shown plenty of chops and – Probably what this organization needs right now. And again, face-offs, penalty kill, one year of term, maybe a little more than you want at 1.9 million. But considering what they did on defense, they really had no choice but to shop in this aisle. Absolutely. And once again, great value, right? I was, I mean, look, if you're Teddy Bluger, you should have been hyped when David Kampf got four years and $10 million. And yeah, absolutely. Now, Camp is obviously a better player than Bluger, no question about it. Camp is somebody you can legitimately sort of count on in a third line role, sort of in terms of what he did last season, as opposed to Bluger, who was more of more deployed in a fourth line role. But the difference between them is not significant at all. Both guys are bottom six defensive specialists who'll help out on the penalty kill, face offs, and are very limited offensively. So when Camp initially got the contract, I was worried about the precedent that it might set for other free agents. And yet, one year under $2 million, like that's great value for the Canucks relative to what uh, Camp got. Especially, again, you look at the peak. I'm going to keep harping on this, but it's so important that the PK results, right? Over the last three seasons... There are 235 NHL forwards who've logged at least 100 minutes shorthanded. Bluger ranks 27th best in terms of his goals against rate according to natural stat trick. And of course, with him being first over the boards, it's really tough to have a, a really nice sort of short, a nice, uh, nice goals against rate. Usually the guys that top the list for best goals against are guys who are deployed against second unit because it's much better to drive results when you're stepping over the boards and the opposition isn't uh, set up in their power play formation yet. And if you look at specifically filtering for guys who average at least two minutes on the PK per game, among that sample, Bluger's second in the league behind only Jordan Stahl in that uh, goals against per 60 rate. So the other difference too, compared to Curtis Lazar and, and Jason Dickinson, because those are the last couple of marquee forwards that we looked at and went, okay, th those guys should be able to upgrade uh, the penalty kill is the face-off side of it. Because in the case of Dickinson and Lazar, right, it was easy to look at Lazar and go, man, he played significant minutes on a Bruins penalty kill that is consistently ranked top 10 and on paper it should have fit. But the problem that each guy ran into is that they couldn't win shorthanded draws. And face-offs at 5-on-5 five five aren't, aren't, you know, make or break. Um, they don't have a huge effect on, um, you know, what team controls play and, and, and whatnot. But on the penalty kill on special teams, it's huge because you win that initial draw, you're getting that first clear and you're going to shave off at least 20 seconds off the clock, potentially more because we know it's not easy to get set up uh, against a neutral zone four check to enter, enter the zone with control. As opposed to if you win that initial draw, I mean, how many times did the Canucks over the last couple of seasons allow goals right off of initially losing that draw? And it's just like, lose the draw, bang, bang, in the back of your net. So this is something that Alvin highlighted was that Bluger's successful at winning those PK draws specifically, not just five on five, but in shorthanded situations. So that'll be a significant boost. And look, at even strength, I think it opens up a window of opportunity for some competition between Nils Amon and Teddy Bluger because 
the way Oman played down the stretch, if that's something that he can sustain moving forward, look, he may push Bluger for third line shifts at um, at even strength, which is a positive sign because Oman is only 23 years old. So there might still be some upside there. And from his perspective, I, th- I think he's a winner in, in all of this because for Oman, look, he was never go- going to... First of all, we knew that the Canucks were really adamant about upgrading a third line center. That's the first sort of need that they, that they had identified at the end of the season when Alphine spoke. So if you're in Oman's shoes and you're sort of thinking about another, another centerman coming in, this is probably one of the be- best case scenarios in terms of hoping that you can t- assume a bigger role because Bluger, his main value is going to come on the penalty kill. And now there's some opportunity that, hey, if I'm Oman, if I break out, there's nothing holding me back. There's no roadblock to take a, taking on a bigger role. So that's another storyline or, or thing to sort of monitor heading into camp. No, and I think it's a good point before we go to break here, just that there's still opportunity to give others room for growth. So you talk about Nils Oman, that Bluger can still have a significant impact on this team, even if it turns into fourth line center and heavy penalty kill minutes, if Oman shows he's capable of more in an offensive role. And when you're able to limit term on the defenseman as well, it's going to give opportunities down the road potentially for this to serve as a bridge to guys like Akito Hirose and Noah Juleson, you know, and, and a few others that are in the organization. And, and obviously, uh, Villander, who uh, we'll talk about a bit in the second half here, who just showed up for development camp. Um, you know, there's some opportunities there for some of these guys down the road and for these players to bridge to that as opposed to, you know, what you were dealing with with an Oliver Ekman Larson if he was going to be saddled to this club for the next four years and how much that limits other players from moving forward. We're going to take a quick break and just get into that. Just the the trickle-down effect, the fallout of these signings on the rest of the roster when the Van Kes continues. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Just a reminder, my appearance on the VanCast brought to you by my good friends at Key West Ford in New Westminster. So, Harm, Vancouver now sits over the salary cap. They're $1.7 million over. They do have some room within that based on LTIR with players like Tucker Pullman and Tanner Pearson. Tanner Pearson, interestingly enough, they doubled down because I think all of us were surprised a week ago when we asked... Patrick Alvin about Tanner Pearson. He said all signs are pointing to him being ready for training camp. So I want to ask him the question again. Like, are, are we clear on this? That your expectation is that he's going to be available to go and be 100% at training camp. And Alvin, his word was absolutely. And he said that's the message he's getting from the agent. That's the message he's getting from the medical staff. The hand is healed and they fully expect Tanner Pearson to be ready to go. Now, fantastic news for Tanner Pearson that that is the case. It's going to jam things up a little bit for the Canucks from a cap perspective. Um, You know, they still have Tucker Pullman, who Alvin certainly was not nearly as pessimistic on. And, and, you know, uh, not to sound callous because I don't say this from from a hockey and cap perspective, but it certainly wouldn't surprise any of us if we've seen the last of Tucker Pullman as a National Hockey League player which is very sad for him, for his family. Let's hope he's eventually at a place where he can get healthy. You know, and even Alvin said he's talking a little bit more about just life as opposed to hockey right now, uh, which is obviously, you know, priority. Um, you know, from a, from a Canucks perspective, uh, they're over the cap. They're $1.7 million over. And 
they still have to sign Nils Hoaglander, among others, but Hoaglander being the key one that could potentially be in line for a little bit of a raise. Obviously, the fact he spent most of last year in the American Hockey League is going to suppress his value a little bit. But just talk about where the Canucks are at right now from a cap perspective, because barring a hockey trade and doesn't, you know, like we know Connor Garland's name is still going to be out there, but barring a hockey trade, this is who they've got. So what does this club need to do from a cap perspective? Because they can probably be cap compliant just on Pullman. He's a $2.5 million cap hit. They're $1.7 million over currently. But again, the, the, the Hoaglander thing is going to be a part of this. So what are, what moves are you looking for and, and should Canucks uh, fans be concerned? Because right now they still have, like when you look at their roster, it's based on 20 players, right? It's based on, sorry, it's based on, um, that 1.7 million doesn't in, in my calculations include Kravsov, who's still under club control or Matt Irwin, whose money they could, they could bury quite quickly. Right. So, you know, you're still looking at a team that's got to add one more defenseman and you're still looking at a team that's got to add one more goalie. And it's in the organization, but just in terms of where that cap number fits in. So where do you see them at and what needs to happen from here? Yeah. I don't think it should be too difficult once you, um, place uh pullman on uh ltir yeah uh, of course but it might like with hoaglander depending on what you sign him for he's not going to be expensive though really he doesn't have a lot of leverage and that's actually where like you we've seen examples of a team like like what it may do is prevent you from being able to get term on hoaglander right sure. if you sort of looked at him as a player that okay he's coming off a down year we want to bet on him long term let's you know sign him for you know three years four years whatever and um and bet that he'll break out and that in years two three and four that we'll get a bargain of player it, we've seen plenty of examples of situations where if a team is really pressed up against the cap they can just ab- like grind a guy down like you look at the oilers for example with ryan mcleod he was an example of a player who heading into last last summer for example he had a pretty decent year in the nhl and um you know, they were they were able to get him, I think, sub one million or something because uh, they just didn't have flexibility and McLeod didn't have arbitration rights. And so that's just the type of thing you can do on a one year deal. Right. So that's what the Canucks could do with Hoaglander uh, if necessary. It's not ideal, but absolutely they can grind him down on a one year deal. And again, because he has no arbitration rights, that's like he's players got very little he's got essentially no leverage besides yeah and, saying he's gonna sit out. and you're right in my mind i'm thinking in terms of what he would cost if they extend him for for multiple years not just the one year but on a one-year deal if they want that flexibility you're right it won't affect their cap at all yeah and so with that i'm not i'm, I'm not too worried in terms of the cap compliance standpoint and i mean you'd hope an organization i mean i shouldn't say i hope they'll they'll know that you know, you don't want to be in a position where you're all of a sudden forced to move a contract out and every team knows that that you have to move money out, especially they would have in the lead up to the Ekman Larson contract, they would have known how hard it is to move money out. And so they'll, they're smarter than to sign more, sign more contracts and take on more commitments than they can afford under the cap um, and, and put themselves in that type of uh and in, in put themselves in that type of really undesirable situation. Uh, they were able to get an extension done with Akito Hirose, a two-year deal, uh, just under 800000 per, so kind of the number that you'd expect. So, you know, I talked about a bridge. So, unfortunately, they couldn't get Kyle Burroughs done. Good for Kyle that he was able to get three years of term, you know, at $1.1 million per. Great to see. Um, but, you know, they've created a bit of a bridge to a guy like Hiroshi, to a guy like Villander, to a guy like Juleson, to some of these guys. So I want to ask you who you see as the other defenseman to make the opening day lineup. So they brought in Matt Irwin, 35-year-old player. I would hope he's not one, you know, that he's not in the top six on opening night. I would hope that he's in the minors and could be a guy that they call up at some point and give one of these other guys a chance that they can hit on a little bit. And you, you know me, I'm, I'm like head of the Wolanin fan club. Uh, and then you've got you've got Hirose as well. Who do you see as potentially the sixth Canuck defenseman 
playing alongside of Tyler Myers, who wins that battle, if in fact Myers does stay. And we'll get into Alvin's comments about Myers in a minute. Uh, and, and who becomes the extra defenseman, um, you know, and again, I know they're going to go through 10 to 12 guys during the course of the season, but opening night, what do you see playing out there? Yeah, I, I think it'll ultimately camp. It'll be, it'll be a battle between Wolanin, Brisebois and Hirose, and it'll just come, come down to camp in, in preseason. I think if you were to ask me right now, I'd give the edge to Wolanin simply based off of his puck moving, which I think is another sort of component that we have to consider when we look at this Canucks blue line is do they have enough puck moving? Because certainly they got bigger. Certainly they have improved defensively, but we know how much this team has struggled to move the puck despite having, you know, pretty much all non Quinn Hughes minutes. I know, but um, you have to, you have to believe that Heronic is going to give him that he's proven that he can move the puck. He can, but how high end is he in that, uh, in that capacity He's more of an all around defender, right? Like, I'll give you an example. So this past season with the Red Wings, Hironik led 5.04 defensive zone exits with possession per 60 minutes. According to Corey Schneider's tracking, that ranked fourth on uh, Detroit's blue line behind Mo Sider, Jake Wallman, and Ole Mata. So we saw that, yes, Hironik is comfortable moving the puck. We know that he can make a good first pass for sure, but he's not a dynamic player. He's He's a solid puck mover, but he's not necessarily somebody who's going to single-handedly drive the bus in that capacity. Because you look at his zone exit numbers, they're pretty pedestrian. They're 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 solid, but they're unspectacular. And that's where we saw when he was paired with, let's say, a player like Ben Sherratt, Hironic couldn't like he needed legitimate puck moving help because when you placed a physical you know, shut down, stay at home guy who was really limited with the puck and Sherratt, that pair got caved in its own end. That pair allowed a lot of chances. That pair allowed a lot of shots. Um, and what it took was somebody in Oli Mata who Mata and Hironic carried a sim- very similar load in terms of um, controlled breakouts. Again, Mata was actually slightly ahead of Hironic in, in terms of the volume of breakouts with uh, control. So that's something that I think you at least, you know, have to wonder about is the speed and, and the and the ability to transition quickly, especially because you've also, you know, presu- you're presumably going to lose Ethan Bear, who added that element to the blue line as well. So look, at the end of the day, the Canucks weren't gonna, going to be able to solve every need this offseason, right? I I still all things considered like what they did, but it's still a question mark to me in terms of do you have enough puck moving outside of Quinn Hughes. Yeah, like I said, and I would love to see either Willanen or Hiroshi get that opportunity because I think they've got the ability to do that, and I think both players have the confidence uh, to do that. Willanen, just because he's been in this league for a while, and Hiroshi, it's a small sample size, what we saw last year, but the confidence that kid played with was really, really encouraging if you're a Vancouver Canuck fan. Tyler Myers, there was a report, Frank Cervalli, last week that the Canucks had a deal in place on the table now, we don't know the circumstances around it as to whether or not it needed to happen in September when the $5 million bonus had been paid. Uh, you know, we we don't know what was coming back the other way. But according to him, there was a deal in place. There was speculation it was San Jose, not confirmed. I asked Patrick Alvin at the availability yesterday. He's like, if we had a deal on the table, why wouldn't we have done it? Um, and, and he says, you know, reiterated, he expects Tyler Myers to be here. Interestingly enough, on opening night last year, the Canucks will only have one defenseman that they had on opening night last year on opening night this year because Tyler Myers was hurt last year, and that would have been Quinn Hughes. Everybody else will be different this coming season. Um, but with Myers, uh, what did you make of, of that, the report, the fact he's still going to be back, and and do you believe him that, uh, that, that that's not changing between now and next season? Yeah, I mean, I believe him, especially because – Unless the cost, for whatever reason, is way below market value in terms of moving the contract, I don't think it's worth it for one year of cap relief from the Canucks' perspective, especially when you look at how how conservatively they have uh, approached this summer so far. The only possibility I I can think of where that could maybe change is after the bonus is paid out in uh, mid-September, as it's believed. And at that point, 
when he only has one million of salary left, maybe for whatever reason the team feels that that's a contract that they want to take on, and you can consider moving moving that. But I mean, at this point, you're looking at a player who, if he returns, is probably going to is going to be in a position where if the coaching staff wants to, they can deploy him in a third pair role in in scaled easier minutes. And in a pinch, if for whatever reason, I shouldn't say if for whatever reason, if you go down with injuries, injuries are inevitable. So when injuries happen, that's at least a guy that has the experience to play up the lineup a little bit and you're maybe not as exposed. So that's kind of my thought process on it. And either way, if you move him now, it's not as if there are a ton of enticing opportunities on, let's say, the free agent market in terms of what you're going to do with that money. You'd probably only move that Myers contract, in my opinion, if you ship him out and say, well, that money now allows us to take advantage of this very specific trade opportunity that we think um, is really worth it. But I think it's, uh, at this point, a long shot. I'd be surprised if he gets if he gets traded. And now that we're past July 1st, JT Miller also, I'd be surprised if he got traded. He is now on his new contract. So we can stop talking about it. Or will we stop talking about it? You never know. I mean, we had the Edler, will he wave, will he not wave for years? So it'll quiet down, but I'm not expecting it to go away um, at all, especially if this team gets off to, um, I, I really hope they don't get off to another bad start, another bad season, but. I mean, it's not totally going to go away, but it'll definitely quiet down. And I'm glad because it's been a long, almost how long now since Alvin and them have taken over 18 months? Yeah. You know what? I I think it's going to stop completely. Like, I don't think contracts like this get discussed for trades until you get well into them. Like, this is a, this is a long deal there. Like in the first year of this, I I don't see us having this conversation again at the trade deadline. If they can extra out of it again. If, if they're terrible and we're looking at a situation where the Canucks are, again, I don't think this is a likely scenario, but if they're uh, awful, the only way we're having this conversation is if he himself demands a trade. Well, he has that control. I'm just saying that. Don't you think that if the Canucks are, let's say, bottom five or bottom? Yeah, yeah let's say bottom five, bottom six, bottom seven in the NHL. And, you know, by Christmas or around the trade deadline and it's clearly going nowhere. And this is another sort of nightmare season. We're talking about potentially even the front office's future and no, you know, no. whether they could be on the, no. on the, on the chopping block. You don't think Canucks fans are going to be like, well, this team isn't built to contend anytime soon. We should at least try and explore options for getting off of this contract. No, I That'll think be a talking the, point. That would hundred. I, I don't. I, I, I'm telling you. I think point. it's over unless the re- a report comes out saying JT Miller is not happy and is openly encouraging the Canucks to trade him, or however they want it framed. Any suggestion in the first three years, even that this contract gets moved, will be if it comes from the player. And again, like just so someone doesn't get on right here and think I'm saying he's getting traded. I don't. I'm saying quite the opposite. I'm saying the conversation's over unless Miller himself wants out, which I don't believe is going to happen. So, but here's the thing. If you're trying to move that contract ha- halfway through, nobody's going to want it. So I'm just saying, again, I don't anticipate this being the case, but in the unlikely scenario that, the, that this team blows another flat tire and we're talking about, okay, this team's got to go in another direction and you're talking about, okay, where we have to actually rebuild this time and we're talking about, you know, Pedersen's future. We're talking about Heronic's future. Um, and there's that this level of uncertainty around the franchise's future direction. Absolutely, Miller's name, despite him having the NMC, despite him having the ultimate control, it would come up in terms of fans being like, okay, is like we should try and get off of this contract if we're going in another direction. Yeah, but think of the pain associated with that, especially when you're dealing with what you've got with with Oliver Ekman Larson and the dead cap hit there, the amount of money you'd have to hold, the amount of sweeteners you'd have to give. It'd be impossible to rebuild and go in another direction if you are able to move that contract. And by moving that contract, it also likely means JT Miller's had a poor season. So I mean, his so his value is going to be down again. So I mean, first half of last season wasn't going to wasn't Good. So, look, I and I know this is an easy topic to talk about. I don't want to get bogged down because I know we're we're a little over here. But um, anyway, like, so so you think there's a chance? I think we're not talking about Miller for quite some time. Um, I don't think we are. To be clear, I don't think we are either. I'm just saying that if 
if there's if the team's bad enough to where we're talking about you know we gotta retool again or we get we're, we're doing some type of rebuild now then absolutely fans oh. like this market will be talking about let's try and get off of this contract before it's impossible to with, do a, so. with a new president and gm wow incredible hey but go, again i really hope i really hope we don't go down no, that road no, no, because no, I know, that's I a know. nightmare scenario like let's let's be very clear like that would be an awful circumstance if we're back here that, in another six months and talking about miller's future like i would hate to be having that conversation well you know, this is the decade of darkness. So here we are. Uh, any, anything is possible, as Drancher doesn't like to say. Um, real one, quick. Actually, one, one other thing that I wanted to mention in terms of Miller sort of staying, which I think we all expected. But when you look at it's easy, I think, to look at this conservative offseason. And one thing that's important is despite them being disciplined with this free agency in a vacuum, when you look at the Hronik trade, when you look at the initial decision to extend Miller, the of signing, the fact that in their first offseason, they didn't go in a forward-looking direction in terms of, you know, a more patient approach of stockpiling picks, picks and assets, um, that's fine. You know, that's a, this is the direction they've chosen in terms of short-term competitiveness. To me, it's important to still reiterate that, okay, well, if you're going down this road, this team better make the playoffs next season. Like, like them being oh, yeah. conservative... Like that should not lower the bar of what we're expecting from this, you know, team moving forward. And I think the Miller contract is a perfect example of that because, you know, he's he's 30 years old and starting a seven year deal that's going to pay him until he's 37. Anytime you have a contract like that for that deal to work out, you need to take advantage of it in the first three, four seasons. Like you need to win something meaningful because odds are in the back half of the deal it's going to going to be a contract that you look at and go, ah, eh, he's probably overpaid. And we're seeing that right now with the Rangers with uh, Artemi Panarin, right? Uh, first, they they sort of signed him and they wanted him to accelerate the sort of rebuild. And now the Rangers have come to a point halfway through his deal where they've realized, okay, this is a guy that puts up a lot of points in the regular season, but he, he keeps faltering in the playoffs. We're seeing signs of decline. And Rangers fans are really upset at that contract. And so they're capped out. And, and at a point where their cup window is now legitimately opening up, they're looking at that Panarin contract as like a, you know, it's not an awful deal because, again, he still scored 92 points. But because of how consistently he's fallen short in the playoffs, it's uh we'd rather have the cap space than be tied up into this guy. And it just sort of highlights that, okay, you got to win in the first half of the deal before you end up with a Panarin type situation where not that it's a nightmare OEL contract, but you may not love the cap hit and the figure. And that's why it's important that the bar still got to be high for the next season. They still have to make the playoffs, in my opinion. But as much as we talk about discipline, at the end of the day, they've just signed a 34-year-old, a 28-year-old, and a 28-year-old. They're in now. Like this is yeah. for now. So that that tells us you know all we need to know in that regard. Goaltending. Real quick before we go, uh, I, I can't even say his name. The Canucks signed like a goaltender that might be the fifth in the organization. So nothing of note there in terms of how that might affect the big club. But uh, Patrick Alvin talked effusively about Artur Silovs. You know, we still think Spencer Martin rehabilitated his season um, in uh, Abbotsford last year, right? Things didn't go well for him uh, after the Demko injury. And he got, you know, the heavy sample size, even though he looked good early, uh, didn't go well for him in the larger sample size. But then with a bit better structure and things like that around him, uh, when he got back to Abbotsford, things got better. So I don't think they've written him off. But Silovs Martin will be the uh, the backup tandem in some way, shape and form. Uh, we know that now. And, uh, you know, for me, I think that's a good thing. Like, I, I think there's a formula there where you can give Martin enough games to put him in the best position to succeed. And you can give Silovs enough games where you still have an opportunity for him to get a heavy workload in Abbotsford. And I think that's a positive for both players. And you can still get 25 games off Demko's workload if you do it right. And I think that's enough. Yeah, I, I think... For me, the biggest takeaway all along the goaltending lines since the season ended is it really seems like the organization is confident in in Seelovs being NHL ready. I mean, at the end of the season, Alvin was saying that hey, if you if, if he shows that he's capable, we're not afraid to to give him the reins. And and more specifically, I think 
him speaking on um, Saturday, being asked about the goaltending situation heading into next season and not signing another backup. I think right off the bat that, uh, you know, he mentioned Seelofs. That was the first name that came out, came out of his mouth as opposed to, let's say, Spencer Martin. Mm-hmm. So to me, I, I really expect him to be higher on the depth chart going into camp. Now, the camp battle will decide who wins, of course. It's not going to be handed to him, but it does, in my sort of opinion, my view of it, seem like there's a greater and greater likelihood of him earning meaningful sort of NHL games next season um, in in some sort of platoon capacity. And again, because of Abbotsford, it's easier to shuttle him back and forth if necessary. So that'll be really interesting to keep an eye on heading into training camp. Absolutely. Looking forward to that as well. Meanwhile, development camp just happened. Tom Villander, I was quite impressed with his English. Saw, saw his media availability yesterday and uh, he's pretty articulate. I, I don't think we're going to get some of the early season or early career foibles we've had with other European players that have come over and couldn't speak. I, that was great. Uh, got some good reviews on just his skating ability and, uh, and what, um, you know, what he may be able to do at BU this year. Uh, also, we do want to let you know that there's been some great uh, coverage in The Athletic. Uh, Harm and Drancer both have a, a number of different articles in and around what the Canucks have managed to do, kind of their 10 thoughts on who it affects and, and, and who it benefits and, and what the, the true meaning of these moves is and where to look for success. Uh, but um, as far as we're concerned on the VanCast, our regular show that we do every Monday is, you know, it's going to be fluid over the course of July and August. We are still efforting to get some guests. Anytime the Canucks make news, we'll absolutely be here to react in the form either of an emergency pod or or get one up pretty quickly, um, but, you know, depending on the timing. Uh, but uh, yeah, we are going to take some time off this summer before we get back at it in September. But again, uh, just follow us on our social media platforms. If there is anything to react to, we will make sure that VIPs have it all covered. Uh, also, you can get a new subscription to The Athletic for just $2 per month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. And if you're looking for podcast coverage on The Athletic, The Athletic Hockey Show has hockey fans covered all summer long with breaking free agent news and team previews as we go here in July and August. What do you got planned, buddy? You, you, you're going to go get a 10? Neither one of us needs it. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Um, honestly, just looking forward to the beaches, the seawall, all, all, all the Vancouver type of stuff. I mean, I the don't summer of harm. On, yeah, I mean, I don't intend on traveling much. I had already done my trip to Montreal and, and Boston in, in May, and, and that's enough for me. I mean, last six weeks I've done three trips now. Um, two of them obviously being work work related with um, the combine in Buffalo and, and Nashville for, for the draft. So. I mean, no airports and, and no flights for, for me from uh, from now. I've, I've had a steady diet and, um, you know, like, this is the one thing too. There's such a, like, it's cool to be able to travel elsewhere in the summer, but it's there's also a feeling of there's nowhere else that's better to be in the summer than Vancouver anyway. So that, that just kind of that, that just kind of chips away at you. And so I'm excited to be a tourist in my own city for the next uh, couple months here. That's awesome. Um, for me, I'll be traveling a lot. Uh, I'm going to the Okanagan with family at the end of July, but I've also got uh, NFL training camp trips, uh, some CFL panel hosting, a bunch of different things. So uh, I will not have my feet comfortable for too long. Might not involve a lot of sticks and pucks, but uh, I absolutely am going to stay busy and uh, and trying to enjoy West Coast lifestyle as much as I can too. I'm not sure we're going to run into each other in the same places, but hey. I'm sure we're going to talk plenty. So uh, have a great summer, my friend. And look, we're not going to be gone apart for the next two months. We, I'm sure we'll get back at it at least, you know, two or three times over the course of the next two months before we start up again uh, at the beginning of September, regardless. Absolutely. Thanks. And have a great summer. And all the VIPs, happy belated Canada Day. Have a great summer. Thanks for listening all season long.